Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Corporate logos turn rainbow during this June Pride Month, even as some of those same companies made hefty donations to anti-LGBTQ politicians. Instagram and LinkedIn now offer a profile section displaying users' pronouns. Will other platforms soon follow? And LGBTQ stories at the center of two powerful pop culture pieces. Later in the show, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the enslaved men and women of Texas got the word they were free. Our encore conversation on the unique history of Juneteenth. But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, Youth, or Bagley. Welcome, Grace. Hi, Callie. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Jansen Wu, Executive Director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hi, Jansen. Hi, Callie. Happy Pride. Yes. Sue O'Connell, political commentator at New England Cable News and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello, Sue. Callie, happy Pride. (laughs) Well, for people who do not know the history of Pride, here's just a little context. President Bill Clinton declared June Gay and Lesbian Pride Month in 1999 and 2000. And then from 2000 to 2016, President Barack Obama named June LGBT Pride Month. And even President Donald Trump tweeted about acknowledgement of Pride Month, but he didn't do an official proclamation. In Boston, according to the history books, 2015 Boston Pride came into its own uh, that year. This year, and I guess last year too, Sue, I'll start with you, a lot of roiling going on in the Boston Pride community. There's been some conversation about too much corporatization of the event and the organizers, but it's kind of blown up and um, we should say, as we're taping, just got word that the uh, the head of the organization has resigned from the board. Yeah, I, I mean, this is actually, Callie, one of those situations that has been almost yearly since Boston Pride and Pride started, you know, some 50 years ago. You know, in the early days, people were concerned that it was becoming more of a party than a political action. I mean, I've been complaining consistently that it's great that um, hundreds of thousands of people come into the city, but are they taking any political action with them when they leave? Um, you know, how are we connecting them to the the important um, aspects of civil rights that need to be, I think, part of the message of Pride? But over the past 10 years or so, uh, as Pride has become more co- corporate, and I, uh, I'll say that my employer, NBC10 Boston, and NHCN is a media sponsor of Boston Pride, it has kind of you know, straight washed it a little bit, if you will. And as thrilling as it is to see um, 
a lot of kindergartens and schools marching and accountants marching and bankers marching. Uh, it has marginalized a lot of people who have been doing the work and fighting for rights and feeling vulnerable since the beginning of time. Uh, and it's not been a balance on how to integrate those needs effectively. At the same time, as the emergence of the reckoning and Black Lives Matter and our racial history has been evolving, you know, within the past five years, it's not even the past two years, the Boston Pride Committee has had challenges in making sure that uh, Black Pride and BLM has had involvement, full involvement at the table. Uh, and they've been unable to, to, to get Black representation on their board. So what's happened over the past two years uh, is really just pushing that issue that Pride isn't representative of some of the struggles that we still endure and how will they rectify that. So there's been a push by uh, local activists to, to ask the board to resign. Linda DeMarco, who's been the president or in some capacity for many years, um, has announced that she'll be stepping aside. Uh, whether or not they have a parade like they were going to have in the fall is up in the air. Uh, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great step forward to push, like many prides across the country and across the world are doing, to refocus on what the civil and human rights issues of the LGBTQ plus community are. Jansen, this uh, spilled over into the mayoral contest because Boston Pride organized a mayoral forum, presumably to talk about LGBTQ issues, and then the other alternate organizations that have been in contention with Boston Pride set up their own thing. And then the candidates decided, well, I don't think we want to do this. So they said, we're not going to appear at the Boston Pride Forum in favor of the the alternate events and stated, you know, that they were concerned about some of the, the issues that have been raised by Sue. So Jansen, how do you read this? The, the uh, resigning of uh, Linda DeMarco is that I don't want to say a good thing, it's, but I mean, does that suggest movement or pro progress of any sort to you? I mean, first and foremost, I think this really is a demonstration of the power of community organizing. As Sue was saying, there's been community frustration building up with the Pride Board's leadership for many, many years, um, you know, related to kind of corporate involvement, but also related to racial justice issues. And most recently, you know, the decision a year ago to remove the phrase Black Lives Matter from a statement regarding the George Floyd murder. Um, and that's really what tipped things over. And I've been amazed to watch uh, the work and movement of grassroots organizers from Pride for the People, which is made up of um, former volunteers of Boston Pride, um, as well as Trans Resistance, which created an alternate space for Pride celebrations last year and will do so again this year, in really making their voices heard and pressuring politicians, pressuring corporations to call for an evolution um, and a change in board leadership at the, at the Pride. So I'm hopeful. Um, I think that, you know, like all organizations, like all movements, you know, we are always in evolving and growing. And I think this is just one step uh, in that process. I will say on the, on the corporatization side of things, um, you know, I share much of the frustration that Sue had um, expressed around how it felt like we we're losing kind of the core spirit of pride. 
I will also say that I speak to a lot of kind of um, pride ERG groups, employee resource groups within um, large employers and organizations who have fought for years to be seen within their own organizations and their ability to march in pride also represents a lot of um, important organizing and changing business and corporate approaches to LGBTQ inclusion. So I don't want to lose that representation of our community. And at the same time, if it's just, uh, and I'll go out on the limb here, the last Pride I marched in, we were behind a Doritos truck where <laughs> I have no idea if anybody from the Doritos was even LGBTQ identified, but they were just tossing Doritos into the crowd. And I felt like I was walking behind a giant billboard. So <laughs> I think there's there's lines that we can draw that can still include those corporate LGBTQ employees who fought so hard. And Kelly, Kelly, if, if I could just note the the mayoral forum for the Pride Committee has been re rescheduled for this coming Monday. I'm moderating it, and as uh, as we talk today, four of the candidates have agreed to appear. Okay, very good. Um, I just want to follow up with the the corporatization and the, and and people feeling uncomfortable around that. Grace, before you chime in, here's a clip from Saturday Night Live, a skit last month called Pride Month Song. Yeah. Deutsche Bank floats? So clearly that was a satirical look at the corporate uh, support for Pride events, Grace. Um, weigh in, if you will, about what's happening locally, how you respond to what some believe is an over-corporatization, but also Jansen's point that, you know, this is an opportunity for representation inside a lot of these organizations. Well, sure, and I echo a lot of what Jansen and Sue said. I, you know, I've I've been marching, you know, with Bagley for over 40 of the 50 Pride marches. So I remember when it was a small, uh, you know, small march with very few people watching from the sidelines, and no corporate sponsors, no businesses, no politicians, uh, allies, and uh, and it was a real protest march. And I watched it evolve over the years, and like anything, uh, a lot of it certainly signaled progress. Uh, more representation, more inclusion, more support, and those are good things. And then I also agree that that it got so big and so expanded that it felt like the the actual queer organizations led by and for and founded by queer people were getting more and more lost in the middle of of sort of this larger event that didn't that seemed less and less about us. And I I had to laugh when Jansen said about the the Doritos truck because yes, the last time we all marched, uh, you know, before the pandemic, you know, Bagley was way back in the parade it took us a couple of hours to even get started. We were behind a pharmaceutical company and by, and with you know in front of us and another group behind us and and it just felt like where are we and and the young people were confused and so yeah i think what this really signals and it's been coming for a long time is that a younger generation of queer and trans folks are really looking for something different something that's more inclusive more representative absolutely something that elevates and centers the voices of, of lgbt folks of color and trans people and others who have been more marginalized in, in the in the while the success has risen for some in the community, it certainly has left behind others. And and they're they're organizing and they're focusing on something quite different. Mm. 
So along the lines of uh, wanting to make certain that the authenticity is at the core of uh, Pride Month and all that it represents, there is an organization that's out there trying to figure out who the people are who are, as you would say, Jansen, straightwashing. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that Burger King uh, came out in an attempt to troll Chick-fil-A. Everybody knows by now Chick-fil-A has had uh, anti gay statement from its corporation, and that has been going on for a while, though they've tried to, you know, sort of manage that in in more recent years. So they're a target often. So Burger King took it upon itself to, you know, make a little snide remark and say that uh, it would donate 40 cents to the human rights campaign for every chicken sandwich, which is their Burger King's new chicken sandwich, sold in June, Pride Month. And so, of course, that would be money that would go to the organization that is the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. And they made the crack that we do it even on Sunday. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday for religious reasons. At the same time, they were in trouble. Some of their employees ended up going on strike because a manager blamed their ineffectual paying attention to what was going on with one of their trans colleagues who ended up dying of coronavirus. They decided to say that it was because of not from coronavirus, but because the employee was injecting hormones, which then uh, their the fellow co-workers went out on strike. So Burger King has something to try to sort of cover up there. In any case, keep your pride is the movement to make sure that people look behind the donations and some of the, as what people would say, performative display of support of pride to make sure that these donations are uh, supporting people who actually do support LGBTQ issues and don't, as some have been proven to, go to people who are anti-LGBTQ. So I'll start with you, Jansen, about responding to this. Well, certainly what happened with that one trans employee is a tragedy. And if, you know, as you say, Burger King is blaming that on her medically necessary gender-affirming medical care, then that's abhorrent. Um and um, I would say that, you know, I'm glad to see uh, corporations giving money to LGBTQ organizations. Uh, I think that, you know, we are an under-resourced movement and that we need support, financial support. And so I don't begrudge, you know, HRC for taking that money. What I will say, though, is, um, and you use the word trolling, um, Callan, and I think that's the right word to use when it comes to that one statement in their Burger Queen's tweet about being open on Sundays. And I think we have to be careful. Um, I think that if an organization is harming LGBTQ people under the guise of religious um, beliefs, then that's wrong. Uh, but if they're simply, you know, stating by standing by their religious beliefs that you know they should not have, be open on Sundays, and that's not, you know, targeted at LGBTQ people or any other persons, um, then, you know, that's that's important. That is important. And I, you know, my husband, you know, grew up an Orthodox Jew and, you know, they couldn't do anything on Saturdays. Um, and so I think we have to be really careful about, you know, ensuring accountability, right, while also, um, you know, exhibiting tolerance and understanding for different religious beliefs. And I think that type of trolling only makes our discourse coarser. 
you're probably right, but I'm my guess is that Burger King just thought they were doing a big old swipe, and that just ended up being something they used as a tool for their swipe at Chick-fil-A as opposed to it being directly at, at the religious aspect of it, which is, you know, that, that's how I read it anyway. Um, what do you say, Grace? Well, you know, and I, I think the, the part about performative is so important that, you know, corporations are, you know, inherently they're businesses and, and, and a capitalist society. And it's about, you know, customers and making money. And, you know, we all want uh, corporations to put their money where their mouth is, you know, that, that they, it's, it's great for them to say the right thing and, and uh, say things publicly, but it's important that their practices echo that. And I think that to the extent that that corporations step up and and do the right thing, and that means by their employees and their practices, and are invested in their communities and are giving back. You know that that's real. That's the real work, as opposed to a situation where they're stating certain things, but it's not. It doesn't go any deeper than that. So you know, certainly, uh, you know, I, I get that this is sort of a, a competition, and and uh, and they're calling attention to that, but. But for me, if a business is doing the right thing on the ground, then that's then that's something to be celebrated. Mm. Sue, I have a number of different opinions that are all conflicting, but yet I believe in them 100 <laughs> okay. um, percent. You know, one is, you know, it's performative, but it's also bully pulpit. Right. So mm. I am all for anybody saying anything that moves our cause forward, even if they're not doing the work on the ground. I'm also for people holding the companies accountable to make sure that their outward expressions match their inward uh, donations of money. Uh, so, and in the environment of the BuzzFeed listicles and TikTok and all the ways that the younger kids are communicating with each other, I don't really have an issue with uh, Burger King trolling uh, Chick-fil-A. Uh, some of these social media accounts for corporations are comedy central, if you will, and definitely communicating to a younger generation in the way that they communicate with each other. And, you know, I actually took the Sunday slam as a, you know what, if you want to discriminate against LGBTQ plus people, how dare you, you know, close on a Sunday because it matches your religious beliefs. One would think that serving LGBTQ people uh, in a way that we need to be served, and it's not just hot, spicy, good tasting chicken, um, one would also not be worried about whether or not you're open or closed on a Sunday. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Grace Sterling-Stoll of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, Jansen Wu of GLAD, GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders, and Sue O'Connell of New England Cable News. We're discussing what's happening in the LGBTQ world. All right, now off to two stories, one local, one national, about people making um, comments, not unusual, that are untoward, uh, but both of them are from the Republican Party. So first, here in Massachusetts, Deborah Martell, who represents Ludlow on the 80-member GOP state committee, uh, said behind closed doors in a meeting that she was, quote, sickened, unquote, that a GOP congressional candidate had adopted children with his husband. After that statement was made public or got into the public, uh, lots of folks uh, asked Jim Lyons, who is uh, chair of the party, for her resignation. Uh, 29, actually, of the 30 party members said she should resign. She herself has said she is not resigning and she feels bullied by the people who are trying to make her resign. So there is that. And then Chasson Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg's husband, also pointed out an untoward uh, comment from uh, the GOP chairwoman's LGBTQ pride tweet. Now, this is Rona McDaniel 
Um, and he pointed out that she was hypocritical after she tweeted about LGBTQ Pride Month. And here he is responding to her tweet. I want to be clear. I don't think that all people with deeply held religious beliefs are homophobic. I know many LGBTQ people who consider themselves to be deeply religious. But that kind of language says we will tolerate the LGBTQ community, but we're also going to tolerate the people who would like to deny you housing, deny you civil rights. And in their party's platform, they're still calling uh, for the denial of same-sex marriage. So I raise these both of these because these are two people that uh, others have responded to her in uh, political situations, you know, of some power and um, interesting responses to to both of them. Uh, what say you, Sue O'Connell? Well, I think on the state level, when it comes to the state Republican Party here in Massachusetts, we have to remember that in their party platform, they are against same-sex marriage. Equal same-sex marriage, that has been the law of the land for quite a while, uh, not only here in Massachusetts, but across the nation and in many parts of the world. Yet they still find it important for them to include a platform that is discriminatory. So um, I don't think we should be so surprised and shocked that there are members of the state party who uh, don't find it to be uh, offensive to say out loud what they're thinking in their head, which is to discriminate against an openly gay candidate who's got a family and and is married. And, you know, it's just amazing to me that we're surprised by that. And we had Scott Lively, Mm, who was basically criminal, right? He he was charged with criminal activity regarding his anti-gay activities in Uganda. He was a candidate for uh, governor against uh, Charlie Baker in a primary and won a significant amount of the Republican Party's votes here in the state. Um, but what we're seeing, I think, with the Republicans, both nationally and statewide, is there's a, a plank of them who are not at all concerned about being discriminatory and being offensive and um, are not concerned about forwarding equal rights. At the same time, we have you know, our state lawmakers and our governor, Charlie Baker, who have come out strongly um, f- about the speech and, and what should happen about it. Um, but this, I think, mirrors the divide that we're seeing in the Republican Party uh, regarding the Trumpers. And, and we should be very clear that most of the people uh, in this Massachusetts drama are, who are saying it's OK to say those hateful things are supporters of Donald Trump. And the people who signed the letter saying that you shouldn't are not. And this is I think, just emblematic of the split that we're seeing in the Republican Party nationally. So, Grace, what I think is interesting is that in the Republican Party are a lot of young people, even the party that is now very Trumpian, as Sue has said. And most of them are very offended by anti-gay literature, comments, whatever. You know, that's not their deal. They got some other stuff that they stand firmly with the party. But, I mean, you could see it all over. Young people sort of pushing back against this. You lead a youth organization. I just I look at the people who are saying it, and they're not young. So I'm wondering if there's not only a you know, split in the party for other reasons, but also uh, generational. Yeah, I think there, there certainly is on a lot of levels and and you know we don't want to be you know make it too sweeping generalization because you know and i've said this too that you know while while uh, there are many young people who are pushing change and uh want something very different uh, whether no matter what part of the political spectrum they're on you know there are also conservative young people and there are older people who are quite radical so you know it, it's not a you know, generation against a generation but that that being said there's no question 
that I think young people and many others, too, of all ages, have really been turned off, disenfranchised by what the establishment, which is usually the the older folks uh, of both parties, but especially the Republican Party, are representing and doing. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, an elected official in Massachusetts said that, but I'm, I'm more surprised that, that so many in the, in the, of, of their fellow Republicans repudiated that and are even calling on Jim Lyons to resign, and he certainly should. Um, you know, uh, he's been a thorn in our side for many years on many issues, but are pushing that far uh, to distance themselves from the, that, that one person's comment. You know, the National Republican Party, as we know, is, is it, it may be a fight, but, but by all measures, it, it is a party of Trump, and, I, and I've yet to have any real hope that they are pulling away from that, and only time will tell. Mm. Jansen, put the button on this, if you would. <laughs> Just two short points. You know, with regards to Representative Martel's comments, I think it's one thing to say that you believe a child should have, you know, one mother and one father, although I still think that is a problematic. Um, but it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to say that she's sickened by the adoption of two children by a same-sex couple. And I would ask her if she would say those words to those children to their face, because she is an elected official and her words like matter, they matter. And people are listening, including young people in our Commonwealth. The second thing I would say um, is that as an elected official, Representative Martel has made an oath to uphold the laws of our nation and the constitution. And I think you could arguably say that both the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, have ruled that it is unconstitutional to treat same-sex couples differently than different-sex couples as it relates to marriage and parentage and family law. Um, And so while she may not agree with that, she has an obligation to uphold that. All right, let's move on to uh, Instagram, which is now offering users a dedicated profile section to share pronouns. Does this feel late to you all or not? I should mention that LinkedIn is doing it, and it opens a possibility. I guess other platforms could, though I'm I'm not certain they have yet. What do you think, Grace? You know, I'm not sure whether it's late or not, but certainly it's a wonderful thing. You know, it's 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 a recognition that. Many of us use, you know, many different pronouns, and not just the two that have always been uh, uh, made available to us. And so, I think it makes sense. It means that anyone's online presence can be fully representative of how of how of who people are and 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 the pronouns that that reflect that. And so, I think it's a great thing. I think the more that uh, this becomes normalized across the board and in all the settings where pronouns are are invoked or where we're where we uh, need to need to check off a box or or, or introduce ourselves, it's it's just going to be more inclusive and representative of of pe- of, of who people really are. Mm. Um, Sue, yeah, it reminds me actually of the early you know '90s when um, domestic partnership benefits were becoming available for companies, and you know someone said to me, "Well, there aren't that many." gays taking advantage of them, but it also means that the younger generation coming to work at those companies, it signaled to them that they were progressive and cared about things. And I think, especially to LinkedIn's usage, it says that this is now the norm and that you should do it. And I'm I'm often reminded whenever we're trying to make civil rights advances, you know, the two things my mother used to tell me on a regular basis, one was mind your own business. And the other one was just be polite. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you put your own um, pronouns out there, 
you are telling the other people that you are just being polite and respectful to them and that the this is an, an invitation for you to share your pronouns if you'd like and if you don't want to that's fine i'll just mind my own business <laughs> mm-hmm. jansen well i always take the stance that if we end up judging actors for making the decision too late that doesn't really quite incentivize others to do the same and our ultimate strategic goal should be progress right so Whenever someone, you know, makes the right decision, um, I always say, welcome to the party. All right. Well, that's good. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Grace Sterling Stowell of Bagley, Jansen Wu of GLAD GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, and Sue O'Connell of NECN. We're discussing all the LGBTQ news on our radar right now. Culturally, there's two interesting things happening. One, the very popular series Pose, um, which featured a number of gay and transgender characters, uh, had its season finale. So here's a clip from the season finale of FX's Pose, where hospital workers are discussing a new clinical drug trial to treat HIV AIDS. These drugs appear to be working. Why would you want to interrupt the scientists and possibly delay the results of their study? Because the study is flawed if it's only including white people. It's not only biased, it's not scientifically sound. So hold your thought on Pose. And what's coming that many people are thrilled about is Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, uh, which is open to great fanfare and uh, expected to be a blockbuster. Here's a clip from the opening song of the movie musical, In the Heights, which features, by the way, an all-Latino cast. But every day is different, so I'm switching up the beat because my parents came with nothing. They got a little more assured with Paul, but yo, at least we got the stuff. And it's all about the legacy they left with me. It's destiny. And one day I'll be on the beach with Sunny Wright and checks to me. In the Heights, I hang my flag upon display. We came to work and to live and we got a lot in it common. It reminds me that I came from So that's a little bit of In the Heights, and I concluded with that because we want to end on a high note. But also to make the point that in the film adaptation, there was a change uh, about two of the characters. This was first on the stage on Broadway. So in the upcoming film adaptation, Daniela and Carla are life partners as well as business partners. This is not accidental. This was a deliberate uh, change for the film, which uh, the filmmakers are, are very excited about. So now to have you all respond to, as we know here, the impact of pop culture is huge. And I think uh, both of these pieces say a lot about LGBTQ rights issues progress, uh, in my opinion. And, and since I'm not of the community, that's why you're here to tell me if you agree. So starting with you, Jansen. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't start with me on the uh, pop culture piece. <laughs> we could just keep listening to that clip. That was that was great to listen to. Um, so so I actually have been holding off and watching Pose because I, I tend to want to wait till a show has ended so I can just binge it all. So no spoilers, please. Yeah. Um, but what I have, what I understand is that it's an incredibly important cultural piece because not only because it centers, you know, trans women's voices and their experiences, particularly trans women of color, but also because, and I think the last season of this does this so well, it really talks about the impact of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s on our community. And this is 
a history that we cannot forget, especially as we are now observing the 40th anniversary of the very first reported cases of what was, you know, what is now known as AIDS um, by the CDC. And, you know, that's also the day that we mark as AIDS Long-Term Survivors Day. And so that history is critical for our community, particularly the younger generation, to know and to understand. And with regards to In the Heights, I mean, anything the manual Miranda does, I will go see in the theaters. <laughs> uh, and we should note that uh, this is history that a lot of people do not know. So even though some people may know it, sometimes people come to it through a pop culture venue. Uh, Grace. Yes, I would really absolutely echo that. That it, it, and, You know, I, I, uh, I was out in the community before AIDS. I remember that first report. I remember the, our first impact. Like it's, it, it is in history to me. I lived it. And, and I, and I, I know I know how formative it was for all of us and 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 really in terms of how it influenced uh, where we are. I really do worry that young people don't know that history or only know it in a very general way because for a younger generation, you know, AIDS, HIV is, is, a, is a manageable illness that you can either prevent or if you, you know, with, with a pill or if you don't prevent it, you can quickly get diagnosed and go on medications and be undetectable. And I know that isn't true. I mean, we know that isn't happening for everyone. And lots of folks who are struggling are at risk. So it, it, it's not even a true belief. But if there's that perception uh, that that's what it is, then, then there's really no awareness or acknowledgement of, of the impact of HIV on our community, on our politics, on our lives, and all, and our community organizations, and how we develop. So I, I'm, I was actually gratified that we were, you know, to see the the attention being paid to the 40th anniversary of that first report. I remember sitting at Bagley, and 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 the young people and I, we, we were talking about it. We heard it. It was happening in real time, and so. Um, and certainly uh, Pose, which is such a culturally iconic show and influential in so many ways, to bring bring attention to that is really, really important because it's bringing attention to a new generation. And, of course, we know then and now, disproportionately, those who were impacted uh, were, were young people of color and young trans people. And I want to emphasize, because I think it's clear that, uh, uh, Sue, before you uh, respond, that Lin-Manuel Miranda's whole hand was on In the Heights. He started writing that when he was 19. But the behind the scenes at Pose, that team of writers were people in the community of trans and gay people. So you had, uh, in both of these instances, an authenticity reflected on the screen that had not always happened because these people were not in charge of the storytelling. Sue. Yes, and, and it's great to be able to say that not all LGBTQ plus IA people are white guys, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a great uh, layer of our, our cultural and uh, representative of our people. I mean, I will say that I really hope that Ryan Murphy will do a Larry Kramer versus Dr. Anthony Fauci musical from the AIDS epidemic, where, you know, act up on a daily basis. Um, you know, protested Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, you are killing us, is a sign that Dr. Fauci saw on a regular basis, which was mentioned in the Pose uh, final season. And of course, uh, to what we would hope Dr. Fauci did, he would listen and keep his ears open and work toward change. And, you know, eventually Larry Kramer and uh, Dr. Fauci came to uh, an agreement and, and purpose and mission, a shared mission about treating and finding uh, solutions for HIV AIDS. And, you know, thankfully we have Dr. Fauci today 
um, guiding us through the COVID-19 process, which I don't think he would be as good a doctor he is today without Larry Kramer holding his feet to the fire about HIV AIDS. And I think he would agree with that. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, he, yeah. yeah, I think he would. Okay, no comment on, on In the Heights? Well, In the Heights I'm excited about um, because I think it also brings us, um, you know, the stories that were untold. I mean, I know growing up in my neighborhood, there were lesbian couples and gay men who we just never called them who they were, right? In the 1970s, they were just a man who lived with his mother and a woman who lived with her roommate. So I am thrilled that uh, those stories that have just been kind of shadows are now being fully formed plot characters who we get to know and can bring us back to that space and time, especially the heights, which you know, is such a melting pot for so many of uh, folks that have come to America or moved to New York. Uh, and so it's, it's, I'm excited to see it. I'll be watching it, I think, tonight or tomorrow night. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me. I'd like to end on an up note when we can. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. <laughs> okay. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Jansen Wu is the executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator at New England Cable News and a co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up next Saturday, nearly every state in the country will formally observe Juneteenth, the day black enslaved people living in Texas learned they were free. Our Encore Conversation takes a look at the evolution of the holiday celebrated in Texas for more than a century and now understood as a pivotal part of American black history. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 